And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, you know of, of our weakness that like the disciples, we need your help to understand and to receive and to believe what you say. We believe, O oh Lord. Help our unbelief. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week's passage, Jesus fed the 4,000 in the Gentile territory and We got a taste of the love and compassion that Jesus has for those who are hungry and who are needy. And we saw that we ought to have hearts of compassion as well. At the end of the passage, Jesus sends away the crowds, gets into the boat, and he goes to the region of Magadan. And we don't know where that is. So we don't know what what the location of Magadan is. Mark, in his account, calls this location Dalmanutha. And we don't know where Dalmanutha is. And so uh, whatever this location is, we, we know this at least, that it is a place that the Pharisees and Sadducees have access to Jesus again. Because remember, he left the, the area where the Pharisees and Sadducees were. They were harassing him. And so he left. He went to the Gentile territory. And now he's back. And so if you remember earlier in Matthew, the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, even though they had seen him do amazing things. They saw him heal the man with the withered hand. They saw, they saw him heal the man who was born mute and blind. They asked for another sign and another sign. And Jesus rebuked them and he corrected them. And he basically accused them and said, you aren't even looking for evidence. You're fishing for excuses to reject me. And he told them that they would not get what they asked for. They would get the sign of Jonah, which they didn't ask for. Right? <laughs> I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. And so there's this insistent drumbeat going on with Jesus, uh, and he doesn't really let up. And, and here Jesus is now, and again, they make a request, and the re- request 
is highly specific. They don't ask for a miracle. They don't just want any sign. They want a sign from heaven. So now they're getting more specific. They're, it's almost like they're asking him to do party tricks for them now. And again, Jesus rebukes them with nearly the same message that he had before. Jesus just has no time anymore for their games, for their excuses, for their bad faith engagement. He won't humor them and he won't give them what they want. But this gives Jesus an opportunity to warn his own disciples about the sort of insidious faithlessness that is part of the Pharisees and is a part of their spiritual routine. It's a part of their spiritual life. And it's an opportunity not just for him to warn his disciples who were there at the time, but it's a warning for us today. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we need these warnings because this can happen to us too. Or when he talks about leaven, he's talking about the way that hypocrisy and blindness creep into the heart. But his lesson to the disciples goes beyond just hypocrisy. And so I want to mention two dangers this morning that Jesus indicates to his disciples. Now, there are more than just two dangers here. Uh, All I'm doing is being selective. I'm picking some things out for us to focus on uh, as in the time that we have. And so the first danger I want you to see from this passage is worldliness. And the second is the danger of complacency. The danger of worldliness and the danger of complacency. Uh, First, I want us to see that Jesus warns us about the danger of worldly thinking. Now, you might think, this is crazy. He's doing the second half of the passage before he's doing the first. Well, that's because the first part uh, just doesn't make my soul sing. I want to do the second part second. So uh, I'm just (laughs) doing it in reverse. Uh, I worked on it and worked on it. I said, I'm not going to force this. Um, And when you get to the end of this first section, your soul may not sing too much either. Um, Let me talk about it and you can decide for yourselves. In verses 5 to 10, Jesus tells the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus is talking about unbelief. He's talking about hypocrisy. But it's almost comical just how clueless the disciples are. Except that Jesus doesn't find it funny. Like he's not laughing about how bad it is. Um, He's teaching them a spiritual truth. And all they can hear is Jesus talking about the virtues of truly great bread. Right? This is, they think he's giving a speech from James Beard. Um, They hear, I bet there's like two of you who know who James Beard is. They hear... I used to have this cookbook from James Beard, and it was so good. And we made the best bread for like a year because I read that cookbook. Um, but they hear, they hear a physical lesson about the virtues of bread, and they do not hear the spiritual lesson he's teaching them, right? And they didn't even learn the spiritual lesson from the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000. So a lot of the ministry of Jesus is just going past them. I think sometimes we think, man, if I was there... Watching the ministry of Jesus, I would be amazed. I would soak up everything. No, it would go past you. You'd miss all kinds of stuff. That's the lesson of the disciples here, that unless the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, it does go right by you. Um, They still haven't taken to heart that their physical lives are going to be taken care of one way or another. But I want you to look at what happens in verse 11. 
He says, how is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? And then look at verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is, I want to address a larger problem that I think the church needs to face and that the disciples have to face here. They hear a spiritual problem, but they interpret it as a worldly problem, right? They hear Jesus addressing a real spiritual issue and all they can think of is their hand in front of their face. That's the problem. And so what we find sometimes as Christians is we are experts in majoring at the minors and minoring in the majors. We focus on the things that don't matter and we ignore the things that really matter. We look around ourselves and we maybe see a world full of trouble. Our world is filled with spiritual problems that we mistake for worldly problems. Um, And this is something that really concerns me when it comes to the health of the church in America. Um, What I want to say is that often we look at these things around us, the problems around us, and we settle for fixing the presenting symptoms and we neglect the underlying disease that is causing the problem. Let me get uncomfortable and mention specific things that we do and we focus on and we miss the underlying spiritual problems. Abortion, gun violence, out of wedlock births, abuse of all kinds, gender confusion, political discord. I mention all of these things and you probably think, no, 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 they talk about that on the TV news. We're working on all of that stuff. And it might be every one of us Here's and here's these things, and we think these things aren't spiritual problems. The laws of the land are the problem. The lawmakers are the problem. If the if the laws of the land were fixed, people wouldn't be able to do these things. Then these things would go away, or at least they would get better. We sort of instinctively flee to the magistrate, and I know that's an old timey word, but it just deals with anybody who's in charge, right? And it's a nice vague term on purpose. We sort of flee to the magistrate and we think that's the person who can really fix these problems. And we think maybe the problem is the current magistrate just isn't doing it right. Or maybe the one before them just didn't do it right. And now this new one just needs more time. Or maybe we need a new one who needs a lot more time to make these things better, right? But think about it. Learn the lesson that Jesus has been teaching. There is sin under the sin. There is sin under the evil that takes place, right? Sins do not come out of nowhere. Where do evils come from? Jesus said it earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 15. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. All right, just take one example for a moment and... And I realize I may not be dealing with this as sensitively as as I could, um, but just think about the issue of of abortion. Right on one level, abortion takes place for complicated reasons. Right, there are lots of factors in decisions that people make about abortion, but at its most fundamental level, abortion takes place at the spiritual level because somebody in their heart loves themselves more than the life that's growing within. Now, that's being very simplistic, 
very reductionistic. But there, there are also fe- there's also fear. There are conflicting desires. Maybe threats from significant others. Struggles with poverty. All kinds of factors. But at the end of the day, the self takes priority over the life of the baby. Not to be too blunt, but even in the complexity of the decision, the heart is what it ultimately comes down to. Gun violence. Gun violence is a spiritual problem. Why do people shoot themselves? Why do people shoot other people? They violate the sixth commandment, Jesus says, because either they don't care for themselves as God says that they should or because they hate someone else enough to shoot them. Gun violence might sound like a political problem, but at rock bottom, it is really a spiritual problem. Go down the list, right? Every single malady, and, and I even list them all, you can't. Um, every single malady that ails our society, even economic problems, at the end of it all, are a spiritual problem at their core. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about laws. It doesn't mean that we should care about abortion laws. It doesn't mean that we don't care about gun laws as Christians. And I'm not saying what those laws should be. That's not my place here in this pulpit. But what it means is this. If you did pass your dream version of these laws, or if you did try to stop those things from taking place, you would not be addressing the heart. You would make them illegal, but you wouldn't stop the sin under the sin. And so our society has a deep heart sickness that the government can't cure or stop or fix. Right? The deep sickness that ails us all is spiritual in nature. And we as a nation are afraid to face the spiritual problems because we lack the will and we lack the common Christian teaching that would have provided us with the tools to deal with these problems at a larger scale. But increasingly, as society becomes more secular, less interested in spiritual things, much more individualistic, we begin to address these problems the way individualists who don't go to church do. We think of them in strictly material terms, and we think these must be strictly material problems. And and by the way, I'm not leaning hard on this subject because I hate politics. You know, on the contrary, politics is one of the greatest drugs mankind ever invented, and I've been hooked since I was 17. So I speak as a user, not as a judgmental outsider. Um, but, but I will also tell you, after decades of believing that the right laws just might fix our land, I now believe far more in the power of the gospel and far less in the power of Congress or the presidency or the judiciary than I ever have before. And I think actually American trust in political institutions is incredibly low. This is an an excellent moment for us to remind people of the power of the gospel because they've lost faith in those other things. Um, By the way, those branches of government can do a lot, but they are impotent. They're impotent to deal with spiritual issues. And that makes them virtually worthless to make a dent in the problems around us. They may change things, they may move things around, borrow a lot of money from our children, our great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, but they can't fix things. And the more time passes, the less, the less, I believe, people can use political power to fix anything in a truly meaningful way, even though they're very gifted. Where are we supposed to find hope? In the Middle Ages, the interesting thing is, and if you were here for our, our worship Sunday school class, and I guess this is my plug for the Sunday school, we're going to be going through the history of worship and continuing from where we were. 
But we got to the Middle Ages, and one of the things you find is that uh, imperial power crumbled at the edges of the empire, and eventually the center of public life was not the government. What was it? It was the church. It was the church that became that that healthy, beating heart of society, that stabilizing force that endured. It was the church, wasn't it? It wasn't the government. But this is why it is so important for us to safeguard the mission of the church. Because the mission of the church is not for pastors and sessions to be out there lobbying for the government to change laws or push for regime change. We've already talked about it. Those are not the things that touch the heart and actually make real change. Christians themselves might do that, and we need Christians to do that and to do it well. But the church has a different role. Its role is to minister the gospel and oversee the things that politicians cannot do. We can minister to the heart. We can minister to the soul. We can minister to the heart of this world by addressing the hatred in men's and women's souls. In the gospel, God cuts sin's power off at the legs. That is real power. That is real influence. Um, There's a famous commentator on our church's larger catechism. Uh, His name is J.G. Voss. And he said something about the Lord's Prayer. You know that line in the Lord's Prayer where we pray, pray, thy kingdom come. Well, this this is what Voss says. He says, many people are deceived into thinking that the general progress of human civilization General education and culture, science and invention, and economic and social progress and organization can restrain or destroy Satan's kingdom. All these things can fit within Satan's kingdom as much as with God's kingdom. Only the gospel of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, really destroys Satan's kingdom. The way that uh, Kevin DeYoung puts it, uh, a little more modern than J.G. Foss. Um, Here's how Kevin DeYoung puts it, and I find this so helpful. He says, the problem is not politics necessarily, but political theology that supplants the centrality of the church. The bigger issue is when Christians and pastors, worst of all, make the church intellectually, affectionately, and teleologically subservient to the world of politics and nation states instead of the other way around. And... uh, And that is precisely my concern. Uh, I'm afraid that for many of us, even though we we might not say it out loud, we really believe and hope that deep down political change is the greater hope. If we were to put the two things up, we'd be like, what's going to make a dent in the world? Then you'd be like, a presidential election, right? Hands down. How many people would instinctively think that? And, And we may put our hope that ought to be in God and in his church, and instead, we put it into politics. You know, election time's coming up. It's that time of year where we're all going to hear those dream-filled words, this election is the most important election in our lifetimes. You've probably heard it already. And it will be said every time there is one, by the way. And, and so what happens? It's that time of year, right? Everybody gets into their corners. We feel like uh, the right leader is the greater hope. And yet we have seen political parties in our country ebb and flow. They shift in their influence Uh, Republicans come into the White House. Republicans go. Democrats go into the White House. Democrats go. Yet people still hate each other, no matter who is in office. Men still sin against each other. They harm their wives. Wives harm their husbands. Children disrespect their parents. Many people love themselves more than their unborn babies. 
unless the heart is ministered to. The political focus becomes like a game of cups, right? Where you you put the problem under one cup, you move it to another place without actually dealing with it. You look like you did something. And all the while, we all look very busy and we look very virtuous as if we're doing something. Now, I realize, probably uncomfortable that I'm talking about this. Politics is like, politics might be your second religion. Um, To many Americans, it is. I wasn't going to mention this, but then I, I looked at this passage again. From this book I've been reading, Gene Twinge. I've mentioned this book, Generations, I think, already. And Gene Twinge is a professor of psychology, not a Christian. She wrote this book called Generations, where she sort of runs through the different generations that have been uh, in America and American life. And she says something very important, especially from somebody who's, as far as I can tell, not a believer. She notes that while Americans were once very religious, they aren't as, they are not as religious anymore. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a, of a highlight from a book. But listen to what she does say. She says, humans have an innate desire to believe in something larger than themselves and to seek meaning in their lives. If religion stops filling this role, something else will step in to fill it. In general, groups based on political beliefs may be taking the place of religious groups. So she is, she's talking from the perspective of a sociologist and who is saying, as church participation goes down, guess what goes up? Political partisanship. You see them almost like perfect moves on the graph. It's amazing to see them both move together in harmony with each other. Politics is a temptation as a replacement for religion. Why? It gives us a sense of transcendence. It feels important. It's, it's big, right? It's world changing. We're changing the world, we think and we hope. And so why else is it a temptation? It's a temptation because following politics and being able to talk about it feels like we're making a difference in the world around us. We feel like we're part of a, of a group that's bigger than ourselves. We feel like we really belong with these people. You know, you, especially when we go deep down the political rabbit hole. Uh, I remember in the early 2000s, Uh, I went to a political rally for one particular candidate, and that rally had a euphoric, almost religious or transcendent feeling in the air. And I think people in the room felt a sense of belonging with each other, almost like going to church. We need to be really aware of this keen temptation. Without telling you not to be participating in politics, which I am not doing and I would not do, let me tell you to love the gospel more and to, to have more hope in God and to have more hope in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change hearts and change the world. The zealots in Israel, they wanted political freedom and they wanted political change. And, and that's where they pinned their hopes. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't encourage their rebel attitude and he doesn't tell them to stop. He doesn't encourage the rebel attitude and he doesn't tell them to stop. Instead, he says, make sure you pay your taxes, mind your own business, and keep preaching the gospel. That's the the attitude of Jesus when, when people ask him what they should do. Soldiers come to him and he says, make sure you don't extort people. Make sure you do your jobs right. Right? Um, Jesus is frustrated in this passage because the disciples need to hear the true lesson, which is spiritual, and they, they can't hear it. The only thing they have ears for is the here and now, what's in front of me. They see a spiritual problem. They assume it has a worldly answer. 
Worldliness doesn't just look like materialism, right? It doesn't just look like an obsession with having things. It looks like what I'm talking about here, where we keep setting our eyes on answers that are found in the world when we should be looking with spiritual eyes. Now, I hope you found that helpful. It doesn't make my heart sing. (laughs) But it's important because the disciples are missing it. The disciples are missing it. Now, the second thing here I hope actually does make your heart sing a little more. And that's, that takes us to verse 5 in our, in our passage. It's the danger of complacency. I think you might miss it, right? But at the very beginning, notice where, the, 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 where all of this passage really started. Why the need for a warning against complacency in the first place? Well, verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. You know, I think we read this sentence, we think, oh, okay, he's just, the author, Matthew, is just setting up the occasion for the discussion around bread and leaven, which it is, of course. But there's something else here that should not get past us. They forgot to bring bread with them. Big deal, right? Um, well, Well, consider this. They had just eaten. Why did they forget the bread? They had just eaten. They had eaten so well that Matthew says, all ate and were satisfied. And by the way, Matthew is writing as a first-hand witness. He was one of those who ate and was satisfied. So he's talking about himself. He's saying, I ate until I was satisfied, right? We all ate until we were full. We weren't hungry anymore. Why, why bring any of this leftover bread with us, right? I don't think I'll ever be hungry again. Uh, have you ever prepared to go like on a, a road trip or a camping trip? Um, after you just had a big meal, you know, you, maybe you don't feel very hungry. And so you pack like somebody who's not very hungry. Uh, you don't even want to think about food again. And so you pack lighter and then maybe later on you really start to regret it. Um, because you aren't hungry, you don't prepare and you don't expect to be hungry. And then the flip side of that is, of course, when you, when you go shopping or when, you, when you're packing for a trip and you're hungry, Right. Your instinct is just put everything in. Just bring everything that we can find. Bring all the food. Uh, I am so hungry. And so that's why they say don't go shopping while you're hungry. Well, they were not hungry. They, they forgot bread. Um, the disciples just had so much food that they had seven baskets of food left over. Of course they forgot to bring something to eat. Right? They weren't hungry. They did not act. They did not remember, they did not plan, because their full stomachs made them complacent to their need. We can do this spiritually. Think about this. It is very easy to think that because we had a great spiritual experience, or just because we remember some moment that left us bowled over, or some time in our life that we did something pleasing to God, and it still blows us away to think that that thing ever happened, right? It's so easy to think, based on that experience, that we can live off of those fumes. That we can just coast off of them. Right? The disciples here were full when they started the trip. Right? How could they ever possibly be empty again for the rest of their lives, they think? How could we ever be hungry again? They can't even imagine it. And yet here they are on the other side, and they're starting to think, wait a minute. What can we possibly eat here? Right? We... We do the same thing with our spiritual experiences. You see, it, it turns out that we need literal daily bread. We, we need spiritual daily bread, not just literal daily bread. And 
we need to keep taking in spiritual things on a daily and weekly basis. Not just settling for those one-time mountaintop experiences and coasting off of those. Have you had spiritual mountaintop experiences in your life? You may have, you may not have. But the danger of those mountaintop experiences is that we live for those things. We look for them in our daily lives. We don't live ordinary spiritual lives. We don't live an ordinary spiritual routine. Instead, we say, I'm going for the mountaintop and then I'll go for another mountaintop when I can tell that things are dry. And so instead of following God's pattern of one day in seven, we just say, you know, whenever, whenever it happens, however it has to happen. Um, I can tell you a, a time when I, I witnessed this a great deal. Uh, I went off to college at the age of 18. When I left home for the first time, I found myself with nobody waking me up on Sunday mornings. And there was no one pressing me to go to church. Now, I actually did go to church when I was in college, but I was at a Christian college and more than half of my classmates slept in on Sundays and didn't even go to church. Um, Their parents were not there to direct them anymore. The pastor wasn't there to notice they didn't show up. Um, Nobody was telling them what they needed most. And so many of them slept in, which which at the time I, I was a very, very, very zealous young Christian man. And I couldn't believe it. I, I was super judgmental of my classmates, to be honest. Um, these are kids who grew up in the church and they felt so secure because of their history and background. If you ask them to share their testimonies, almost all of them had some kind of extreme, dramatic conversion story. And, and they would tell you, oh man, my youth group was the best. My youth pastor Blow your mind. He had such great teachings and such great lessons. And then here they are at 11 a.m. sleeping. And here's what happened, at least my interpretation. They thought their Christian background or their testimony or the missions trips that they'd gone on or the things that they had done or were doing at school. They thought somehow those things formed a shield of, of, against temptation and unbelief. That is a very easy lie that we can feed to ourselves because we ate well before we neglect our daily bread. Um, They thought they could afford to. They, They forgot that they needed to keep eating. And so many of those same students who were sleeping in, to be fair, many of them became pastors and missionaries, right? But some of them ended up abandoning faith in Christ altogether. I could name on two hands. The names of people that I went to school with who no, do, who no longer walk with the Lord um, at a Christian school. All of us need to hear this. If you're a student and your parents are bringing you to church right now, thank God they're doing this for you at this time in your life. If you're a college student or just out of home for the first time or preparing to be, remember that you, you may be considered an adult now, but you can't coast on your previous spiritual experiences or background. But there's another group I'm concerned about, and that's adults who have let the things of God just fall to the wayside. Maybe you're even a grown adult who is just, you're just sporadic and missing church and receiving the things of God, right? You you come to church, but if you're honest with yourself, you, you don't pursue daily spiritual bread. You don't read the scriptures. You don't eat spiritual food during the week. You don't think much about the sermon before or after the Sunday service. Um, prayerlessness has slipped into your life. You no longer take your worries and fears to the Lord. Instead, maybe you write out a plan on a notepad. Um, 
Nothing wrong with that, but do you take your prayers, your worries to the Lord? In other words, you don't speak words of thanksgiving to God anymore. Instead, you have just become complacent. Complacency. God's people experience complacency. It's a normal part of the struggle. St. Augustine. Listen, listen to one of St. Augustine's prayers. This is 1,700 years ago, and it feels like it could have been written maybe 100 years ago. <laughs> he says, I was astonished that although I now loved you, I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight and in dismay. I plunged again into the things of this world as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not yet able to eat it. It's like I I caught the scent. I caught the, the hunger for the things of God. And then I just let myself drift away. Whoever you are, whatever your situation, if you are not aggressively and intentionally pursuing spiritual health for yourself, just know that your soul is not invincible. Uh, Your soul is not invincible just because you had an amazing experience at one time or because you were strong before. Your need to eat doesn't go away just because you previously ate, right? Um, Just because you remember what a meal tastes like does not feed you today, The disciples forgot this and they grew complacent. There is a danger of complacency that we need to be warned by. Let's say, okay, you're like, I feel horrible right now. (laughs) Help. (laughs) What do I do about complacency? If I don't care about complacency, then how am I supposed to care enough to do something about my complacency? It seems like a nasty spiral for me to be in. Let me mention three things really practical. I hope this helps. First, I want to say this. We need to recognize the problem that we are facing in complacency. We need to diagnose. Complacency is it's like, it's like heart indifference to spiritual things. But complacency goes deeper than that. Because it creates a nasty feedback loop, right? We don't care. Therefore, we don't want to do anything about the fact that we don't care. And so the first thing I would say is that by God's grace, we must see our complacency and call it for what it is. This actually can break the loop. This can be the beginning of the loop being broken, right? We should not be oblivious to our own danger. We have to believe that we're capable of complacency. We have to believe that we're capable of self-deception. Um, think about what Matthew, or sorry, Jeremiah 17, 9 says about our heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. I, I, you know, you might think to yourself, well, Paul's not talking about complacency. Complacency totally fits under that phrase, no love for the Lord. Um, in other words, Paul says even his presumably Christian readers need to be confronted and warned and we need to confront our own hearts when love is lacking and when complacency sets in. We have to confront ourselves. What is spiritual complac- Why does spiritual complacency happen? At rock bottom, the issue is unbelief. And I know that sounds overly simplistic. Um, but I think sometimes we're afraid to say this about ourselves. We, we don't like to admit that we have unbelief, but there is something liberating about admitting unbelief in ourselves. 
Um, it's actually a good thing for us to see it and to say it. In prayer, talk to God and say, God, right now, I have unbelief in my life and I can see it. Think of the father in, in Mark chapter 9 who told Jesus, he said, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? However faint his faith, he knew he needed help. From the tiny faith that he had, he cried out for more. And I think when we read the the gospel, we admire this man because he knew what he needed and he asked the right person for help. Our problem actually is unbelief. Perhaps it's not total, final unbelief, but a soul that is struggling to see through the darkness. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why does unbelief take place? It takes place, according to Paul here, when we are prevented from seeing the glory of Christ. When we don't see the glory of Christ, unbelief takes its place. And, and here's what this means. Ultimately, we know what the fight against complacency is. It is a fight for joy in God to see Christ. That's what we're asking for. That's what we're fighting for. So if the God of this world is blinding us to these things, then our fundamental issue is the need to clearly see the glory of Christ. So the first thing I'm telling you is that the, that the fight against complacency requires us to know what the problem is and what we're doing battle against. Ultimately, as Christians, complacency happens when we are blinded to the glory of Christ. Okay, what do we do about that? We see our blindness. We see our unbelief. We see the darkness over our eyes. We see that we're not taking Christ in. What do we do about it? So second then... Embrace the centrality of scripture to the challenge of overcoming complacency. The importance of scripture in this fight cannot be overemphasized. You should not expect to be able to will away complacency. When it's happening to you, here's what you you should know right now. Your will is not that strong. Your will is not so strong that you can just desire to desire Christ. (laughs) What does that mean? It means that the clearing away of the clouds and the darkness and unbelief will not happen simply by an act of your will, just because you think you really want it. Instead, the clouds of unbelief clear as we see Christ, enjoy Christ, and trust Christ. And the clouds of unbelief and complacency return. When do they return? They return when we neglect Christ and focus on ourselves. So the return of spiritual life has to come by God's doing. He has to impress himself upon us. Um, in another place, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Right? The spiritual good that we enjoy comes by God's doing, not ours. But that doesn't mean that we are supposed to be inert and just sit there and sort of wait to feel joy. I do think we do that, right? We, we, we sort of feel complacent and we say, ah, but I'm a Calvinist. I'm supposed to sit still and not do anything, right? <laughs> I'm supposed to wait for the wind to rush upon me, right? Um, but look, 
Look at Augustine, right? So uh, go, go to Augustine, look at his confessions. What does Augustine do? He knows he isn't pleasing God, right? He, we heard him before just say that he became complacent and didn't enjoy God. So he knows he isn't pleasing God. He knows he isn't enjoying God. And so he turns to God with whatever faith he can muster. And this is what he prays. He says, give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command and command me to do what you will. O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. So remember what we said, right? The, 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 the fight against complacency is a fight to see the glory of Christ. We cannot expect to float through life neglecting the things of Christ while also having our heart and mind filled up with a sense of the glory of Christ, right? We cannot have both. We cannot ignore and neglect Jesus and also be filled up with Jesus. What does Psalm 34, 8 say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Taste. That's a thing I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to taste God. If we want to taste God, where do we find him? We find him in the scripture. When we read scripture, the words are pressed upon us. And when I say that, I mean that they are, it's something from outside of us. When we read, when we read scripture, we're not, we're not willing it. Um, we read scripture and almost always there are things that we've forgotten, right? Things we didn't think up. Maybe something we've never read before in our lives. Um, words we maybe don't even invite. Maybe we don't want to read what we're reading right now, right? Um, the Bible is like that, where God comes to us and he gives us things we didn't ask for. He gives us medicine that we didn't, that we didn't read the label for first, right? Um, he brings words of truth to us that we may never have heard or maybe we just forgot. And forgetfulness is such a huge problem in the Christian life. In scripture, what does God do? He communicates to us, right? We said it already. Whatever we receive that is going to shake us out of our complacency will not come from within here. It's not going to come from our own will. And so we need God to come from outside and grab a hold of us and shake us awake. This means that the answer to the problem is all over the Bible, it is Jesus and having Jesus held, held out to us. And it is in seeing Christ in his word and seeing his glory that we are shaken from our complacency. Do not expect the answer to complacency to be found within yourself. Don't expect to find it scrolling on a website or scrolling on social media. You will find distraction there, but you will not find the glory of Christ. Even if it's really clever little one-line sentences uh, that, that are uplifting, that is still not the same thing. You will find your soul forgetting its trouble for a season if you go to social media or video games or movies or TV shows or distractions. And I'm not saying those are sinful, but I'm saying that you will forget your troubles for a while. But you will not find the answer. It is found by looking outside of yourself to God and his word. Now, here's the thing. Even this is a spiritual act, right? Prayerful dependence on the spirit works in conjunction with the word to shake us out of our stupor. I have found, I have found that God usually uses his word preached, memorized, sung, or read to lift me up when I don't desire God. And I can tell you this much. If you are spiritually dry and you say, well, I'm spiritually dry, so I'm just going to stay away, right? 
Stay away from church. Stay away from church activities. Stay away from church people. If you say, I'm spiritually dry, so I'm going to stay away, you know what you are like? You are like the person who says, I'm hungry, so I won't go to the dinner table. Does that make any sense? That's how far deception can go into our own hearts and minds, that we actually start telling ourselves that that's a good idea. I'm never going to eat again. I hope you think that sounds foolish, because it is. It is foolish to stay away from the church while you wait to feel spiritually healthy. How does that work? And that leads us to the third thing and that I want to say about fighting complacency, which is the need for prayer. Now, I know I know a pastor telling you to pray. How original. Um, but hear me out. Again, I told you a lot of problems in the Christian life are about forgetting. They're not actually about not knowing something. Uh, if I asked you, should you pray? If any of you would say no, I think that would be weird. I think you all would say yes. But fundamentally, thinking about what prayer is, prayer is speaking to God what is in our soul. Um, or maybe another way of putting it is prayer is us speaking to God what is missing in our soul. Um, our church's catechism says that prayer is an offering up to God of our desires. But it also says that prayer takes place with confession of our sin. In other words, in prayer, we tell God what we know we lack and we ask him to fill it up and help us, right? We, we ask him to make up all of the things that we know we don't have and that we know we can't see. Jesus is concerned about the complacency of his disciples. It is important for us to be warned about it. That's why Jesus tells the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He wouldn't say this to them if he didn't care about it. Because unbelief in all its forms is something that we should be aware of. Are you aware of it? Fall is here. New routines starting. For most of us, or at least some of us, kids are going back to school. The regular work routine is happening. The long vacations are ended. We're, we're back to our regular scheduled program, right? As we come back to that. Are we aware of the danger of spiritual complacency? You know, oftentimes we pray, we wait to pray till we feel especially spiritual. This is sort of like, again, like I mentioned before, the person who's waiting to feel hungry before he goes to the table. Or he feels hungry so he doesn't go to the table. Look at Psalm 61. In Psalm 61, the psalmist prays, Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I cry to you, I call as my heart grows faint. As my heart grows faint, I call to you. It's the opposite, right? We think our prayers are supposed to be an overflow of joy. And so we're waiting to feel an overflow of joy so that we can pray. But the psalmist here says, my heart is a faint squeak. Um, my prayer is a faint squeak, Lord. And listen to my little squeaking voice anyway. Um, oftentimes that's, that's fine, right? James tells us you do not have because you do not ask. James blames our emptiness on our prayerlessness. Now today, I don't know where you are. I suspect everyone all over this room is all over the place. Maybe you are spiritually healthy at the moment. You love Christ. You have a vision for the glory of Jesus. You see his glory. You're sharing it with other people. You're at a spiritual high point in your life. I want that for you. I love that for you if that's true. And if so, cry out to God to protect you from pride. 
because there's danger all around us. But maybe you feel that you can barely emit a desperate squeak asking the Lord to help you. Then call on you as, on him as your heart grows faint. The same God who lifts up fallen oaks can heal the smallest of branches. We need only look to Jesus. That's the answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these the brothers in this passage today saw spiritual problems and thought that they required worldly answers. Would you help us to see ourselves and our world and our problems for what they truly are? And when we do, would you answer our most desperate prayers and our emptiest needs? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.